This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, a new barrage of Russian missiles and drones hitting critical infrastructure in Ukraine on Monday, knocking out power. How are Ukrainians coping with this? Yevgenia Gaber joins us from Turkey. She's from Odessa here on the Shift. Have you ever wanted to know how you can properly freeze kale? How to do it? Plus, DIY gardening and tech Elon Musk's Twitter. If you want to cancel your account, he's got some tips on that. And navigating the wonderful world of tech, as always, with HandyAndyMedia.com. Have you ever been stuck in a conversation about municipal politics and don't quite understand because there's parties involved. Retired professor from Western University in London, Andrew Sancton, helps us break down the specifics of municipal elections and how federal politics are starting to creep their way in in different places. This is the Shift Podcast. The election that just happened in Vancouver had some interesting pieces to it that were new to me as an Albertan. Political parties, political parties in municipal politics. And then there was some batting that ball around in Alberta. And then I thought, well, wait a second, how common is this? I just assumed that it was something, it was the no-no that nobody ever did, right? Keep political parties out of municipal politics. Well, it became very apparent in Calgary when the new mayor came in. And one of the very first things that she started to do was implement some very federal liberal policies into the municipal government. So I have questions. I want to learn more. Andrew Sancton joins us now. Um, This is Andrew's World. Andrew is a retired professor of political science from Western University. And uh, Andrew, this is... um, this is more your your world than mine, so I'm super curious. W- was I naive to think that this wasn't happening, or at least formally not happening everywhere, or is this new? Uh, no, I don't think you were naive, Shane. Uh, I think most Canadians would uh, think the way you did, unless uh, you lived in British Columbia or Quebec, uh, because those are uh, the two provinces in which there are uh, municipal political parties. In most parts of the world, however, um, the uh, uh, national political parties are openly and explicitly involved in local elections. So I would say it's the Canadians and the other eight provinces and many parts of the United States who are in the unusual situation of not having uh, political parties at the local level. And of course, the political parties that exist in BC and in Quebec uh, don't go by the same names as the uh, uh parties at the provincial and uh, uh, federal levels. So uh, that makes it a little more uh, confusing. But you're also right in observing, I don't know exactly what happened in Calgary, but you're also right in observing that uh, you don't often don't have to go too far below the surface uh, to uh, get an understanding of the uh, uh, political party affiliations of many of the mayors and councillors. Well, the relationships clearly seem to be there. I mean, allow me the space to speak of proximity, at least for where I live, is that the mayor of Banff, um, she was the old mayor of Banff. Like, she was a very well-loved mayor. She was reelected a bunch of times, as far as I could ever tell, did a pretty great job. Um, All of a sudden, though, now she's uh, a senator. Right. Uh, by from the Liberal Party. So then you kind of go, oh, OK, well, that kind of makes sense. Right. Like it, it, it comes together really quickly that obviously those relationships are there. Those conversations are happening. But I guess that maybe I'm too jaded, Andrew. And please tell me if I've become too pessimistic in politics. But when I look at 
this toe the party line lack of representation that we see federally in politics. If you step out of the party vote, they kick you out. It's just that simple. And I feel like on a municipal level, it's the last level of politics that I felt like that we got represented by our local councillors and the mayors. Yeah. Well, uh, I do think that even in Quebec and uh, British Columbia, where there are these municipal parties, they're they're much looser than the uh, uh, federal and provincial ones. Uh, less party discipline. Uh, it's often sometimes unclear what these parties actually stand for. Sometimes the only reason that they're uh, they even put together is to support a particular mayoral uh, uh, candidate. So uh, um, I don't think we have to worry about really tight party lines uh, now in Canada at the municipal level. Even if you had a, a bunch of uh, four or five uh, uh, people who were, say, liberals uh, federally on a particular municipal council, um, there's no guarantee or even likelihood that they'd all vote the same way on uh, most issues. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think most councillors uh, in places where there are ward systems, uh, they're going to stick up for what their uh, ward uh, wants uh, rather than what uh, uh, the uh, party position conceivably might be. Mm -hmm. And um, that's uh, uh, that causes difficulty sometimes because it's hard for mayors to organize votes sometimes if it's like herding cats, everybody's going off in different directions. Mm -hmm. Well, as a your political science background, I guess the question that comes to my mind is, you know, we look at Canada versus America typically, right, for our structures of our government and and the parliamentary system and all those things. But when we look at municipal design, are cities even different the way they're designed from city to city? The basic structure is the same. Uh, you've got a uh, uh, corporation, which is what a municipality is. It's sort of like a business corporation, except it's a municipal corporation. Mm -hmm. It's run by a board of governors uh, or board of directors, which is the municipal council. And um, uh, it can do things that are authorized uh, by uh, statute, uh, by provincial law, which is why they call municipalities uh, creatures of the of the province. So um, municipalities uh, um, are, are set up like uh, corporations everywhere, but um, some of the rules about elections, about raising money, differ from province to province, and that's why uh, it's easier to have uh, political parties in British Columbia and Quebec rather than the other provinces, because in those two provinces, uh, uh, groups of people who come together as a party are allowed to raise uh, money collectively. Mm -hmm. There's nothing illegal about having a political party in Ontario. It's just that the name of the party is not going to be on the ballot. And um, each candidate would have to raise money individually. Uh, so those, that's, those are some of the differences that uh, that exist among the provinces. Mm, I have more questions about money. I want to stay on the municipal focus <laughs> okay. for uh, one other second here, is that when we look at that corporation, as you describe it, what is really the point of the mayor then? Because my understanding was the mayor was basically the figurehead who proposed ideas and was the tiebreaker. I mean, do we put too much weight on the mayor in general or do, because it seems like the board of directors versus the CEO, if you will create the, the easy parallel to a business, the board of directors seems to be making the decisions and the CEO just kind of looks good and stands in front of the camera. Uh, well, you've hit on a hot button issue uh, in Ontario anyway. Uh, first of all, uh, um, 
in the, in the Ontario Municipal Act, the mayor is described as a CEO, but really has none of the authority of a, a CEO in a, in a business. Uh, what the uh, uh, municipal council does usually is hire somebody called a city manager or a chief administrative officer, and that person is really more like this, like the CEO, more more like the person who manages the operation under the direction of the council. Mm-hmm. The mayor uh, is, in many respects, just a figurehead, and uh, a, a, it varies from province to province. But in Ontario, the mayor doesn't have a tie-breaking vote. The mayor has a single vote on every issue. And if uh, it's a tie vote, uh, it's the, the vote is deemed to be defeated. It happens to be the case that in Ontario, uh, Premier Ford has just proposed, just a, had legislation adopted that has made the mayor of Toronto and the mayor of Ottawa much stronger, much more like a CEO uh, than any other mayor in uh, Canada. So that issue about what the mayors uh, have the right to do uh, is now a hot issue, and it's uh, one that may come up for discussion more in uh, other provinces as well. Is Toronto and Ottawa better off with a more powerful mayor, or is it just well, too much uh, power in one we'll, basket? Uh, we'll uh, we'll see. I happen to think that um, uh, having the mayor explicitly and directly in charge of the municipal uh, bureaucracy, uh, which is going to be, which is the case now with the strong mayor system, uh, that that's a good idea because most people, I think, maybe you weren't one of them, but I think most people thought that uh, the mayor actually was in charge mm-hmm. of the bureaucracy at, at City Hall. I think um, I, well, I think I did for uh, a long time. Yeah, yeah but I, so they only had, what, what most people think is, yeah, it's the mayor only has one vote in the council, but he's in charge of the whole bureaucracy. That's mm-hmm. not the, that's not the case or hasn't been the case in in uh, Canada, except for Toronto and Ottawa, and that's starting as soon as the new mayor takes takes office, um, and I, I I think that's a, a good change because um, that's what most people think anyway, and most people kind of hold the mayor uh, responsible uh, for what's what's happening in the bureaucracy. So um, as I say, I think it's a good idea. It seems more efficient when we look at it that way, Andrew. That I mean, if you're the premier of ontario and you need something done that is around toronto or greater toronto go to the mayor don't try to convince how many councillors that it needs to be done and you know try to lobby 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 i mean that to me seems far more efficient i don't know if it's better but Uh, it seems like a lot less work uh you broke up there for me um that's okay i can ask the question again no problem okay it just seems like a lot less work to have to just go to the mayor that's more powerful as opposed to lobby 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 with councillors um, yeah, you got to make a distinction though between uh, uh, what the job of the council is and what the job of the mayor is. Uh, having a strong mayor uh, is just means that the mayor is more, more in charge of the uh, of the bureaucracy. If you want to change the by a bylaw, change the zoning, spend money on something, then you have to get the approval of the council, and you do have to lobby. Uh, if you want to get councilors to agree with you, you have to lobby them. So it's, um, uh, I like to think of it as uh, uh, the strong mayor system is a bit like the American presidential system. You know, the president's in charge of the federal government. Uh, but as we uh, all know, if you study uh, or follow American politics at all, uh, there's certainly no guarantee that an American president can get anything through uh, the Congress. And so if you want to get laws changed in the U.S., uh, you do have to lobby the the senators and the congressmen. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let's talk about the money part. If if they're currently you have to fundraise and fund yourself, most places if you want to be a counselor or the mayor, if you want to go over and above that, would the money coming down from the federal government, I mean, if even if you look at assumptions about politics and political cash right now, if you are an NDP related counselor or mayor, I mean, your purse is a lot smaller than if you're a liberal or conservative. Um, you know, so is that what this proposal sort of starts to look like that federal liberal or conservative dollars could flow downstream to a, a candidate municipally? No, no, the parties, the federal and provincial parties are not allowed to give money mm-hmm. to municipal campaigns. Right. Um, and I think that generally uh, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It would certainly be the case that if you if you were if you're a liberal and you're running for uh, municipal office, you would like to get your hands on the mailing list of the liberals in your area so right. that you can raise money from them. There's nothing illegal about that. Uh, but uh, the actual uh, institution of the party uh, at the federal or provincial level cannot transfer money to uh, to the municipal level. So is that one of the things they're proposing changes to? Is the flow of the money or is that still staying status quo? Um, there's no... There's no uh, I mean, various provinces are always looking at different rules right. for um, uh, municipal uh, financing of campaigns, and usually it's making to making it a little bit uh, uh, rules t- tougher or more transparent. Uh, but uh, I'm not aware of any big change mm-hmm. in that in that regard going on uh, right now. What about div- yeah divisiveness over the last few years? I mean, that's been a conversation that we've seen a lot of. Just in general, right? There seems to be this black or white sort of div- divide in politics lately. Would it concern you to see if that were to spill over into municipal politics, or do you think it's already at play anyway, and they're just navigating it quietly? Because um, your expertise with municipal politics, I mean, you've seen it over the course of a lot of years. So has it changed? I don't think it's changed uh, uh, very much. Uh, you know, one of the things that people are concerned about is that uh, there aren't uh, the turnout in, in municipal elections is uh, so low, and it seems to be that there's not much interest. That that to me is kind of inconsistent with the idea that everybody's getting hyped up about it and fighting with each other. Because if there were really were big divisions uh, among people on municipal issues, you would think the turnout would uh, go up rather than uh, go down as it is uh, now. So. Um, we are in a period of uh, divisiveness in uh, in politics. There's no question about that. I haven't seen uh, that much evidence of it at the municipal level. Uh, maybe in Vancouver in the last uh, election, um, but uh, I don't think you can point to anywhere in Ontario where um, that was uh, that was evident. There's a pretty bold statement in Vancouver with change, um, with the number of people that lost their jobs. Uh, are we, does it, is it like a pendulum with divisiveness over the course of time? And maybe it's hundreds of years. I don't know the answer, but I mean, your experience would lend to this much more than mine would. But is it like a pendulum like we see with other things where we're divisiveness and then they bring it back together again? Or is this just the path we're on to be more divided in general for a long period of time? Um, Kind of the history of politics, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, I I think that there is a a kind of a cycle uh, in many uh, places. It's maybe a little different kind of cycle than what you were talking about. Uh, Often the main 
kind of split in municipal councils is between what a colleague of mine called uh, boosters and cutters. Uh, so the boosters are the people who, for example, want to spend money on an Olympic uh, uh, Olympic Games or mm-hmm. want to spend money on a new new stadium. It's all about creating new, uh, supposedly creating new economic opportunity with uh, public money. Um, the uh, other position, the cutters, are the people who say, you know, we pay poverty taxes are too high. A lot of money is being spent uh, uselessly. So we've got to cut back the budget and we certainly don't want to have all these uh, frills. One thing that we don't see too much of at the municipal level, and maybe this is why we don't have quite the divisiveness that you were, I think, referring to, is that municipalities can't do much uh, about uh, income redistribution. Um, some people want them to do uh, stop uh, do things related to that, but municipalities, even the big ones, are, are generally uh, too small and don't have enough resources to uh, uh, tax rich people to spend money uh, uh, to poor people. And um, if they did, uh, there would be a tendency for the rich people to move somewhere else to another municipality. And um, uh, so they can avoid the taxes that come Mm -hmm. from the redistribution. So um, I do think municipal politics is fundamentally different than uh, politics at uh, a federal and provincial level and for a number of reasons, but that's one of the main reasons. Yeah, it's fascinating. It makes me think of people who have a very large house with high property taxes inside the city um, have been known to move just outside the city. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And have a hobby farm with some goats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. now they're paying a few hundred dollars, not tens of yeah, thousands yeah. of dollars yeah. in taxes. Yeah. No, that, just... that, that, that's clearly a problem in, yeah. uh, for, for municipalities. Um, and you know, people, provincial governments, figure trying to figure out ways to stop that. Maybe have tougher land use regulations or something. But uh, all I was saying was that if you had a mayor and a council that came into office and said, "We want to have uh, higher property taxes so that we can uh, uh, send money to uh, poor people, or so that we can build a huge amount of social housing that we're going to pay for," right. um, if you did that, um, then the issue that you talked about of the occasional rich person moving out uh, to a hobby farm, it would be much more intense uh, than anything we've seen uh, recently. It's fascinating to see what's going to happen next. I, I guess, I don't know if you get older, you get more interested in this stuff. Cause as I, as I, maybe I just learned more about it. I don't know. Maybe I was naive for so long. It's, it's starting to get quite fascinating for me. I really appreciate yeah. you sharing time with me, Andrew. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome, Shane. Fun to be with you. This is The Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's The Shift. We go across the Atlantic, normally to Ukraine, but we're not. We're going just south across the Black Sea to Turkey in Istanbul, where Evgenia Gaber is here with us, uh, an expert on the Black Sea. And uh, I don't even know how to say Evgenia, because you guys have such long lists, you and your friends, of things that you do. But like the foreign affairs, geopolitical perspective, um, Black Sea expertise throw that all in a bucket of smart and here we are and that's that's your world how's that for an informal introduction yeah that that's perfect but the expectations are really very high now after this nice introduction so i have to say something smart right yeah okay 
Ah, uh, you will. You always do. Okay, let's get uh, let's get started. You have been uh, you were back in Canada through the course of the summer doing some teaching. You're back in Istanbul now. You're from Odessa. Let's add that perspective too. Um, that's where your family is. So you're just across the across the sea from from home, but still not quite there. Um, what? How, how are your folks doing? How are your friends doing in Odessa? And and how is that being? You know, you're so close, but yet so far. Well, my friends and family, they're doing fine, like all Ukrainians. Uh, just uh, we have to add that now they spend uh, half of the day uh, in the complete darkness because of the electricity cuts, because of the attacks on the critical infrastructure. As you know, Russians are not very successful on the battlefield fighting with our armed forces. So they are fighting against Ukrainian women and children and civilians and trying to hit us much of the critical energy infrastructure as possible to leave us without heat, without electricity and water. But nevertheless, as always, Ukrainians are trying to enjoy their lives, even in these circumstances. So today we had another attack of uh, 50 missiles in the morning, different parts of Ukraine. Again, electricity cuts everything, but still people are very, very resolved to to, to go on, to stand against Russian aggression and uh, well, until we are alive, we will be trying to, to, to feel ourselves okay and to, to fight back. Uh, and for me, it's, of course, difficult to be on the other side of the Black Sea. That's why I'm going to, to join my family and friends just uh, next week. I'm going back to Odessa. And then I will tell you how it looks from, from inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious to hear that perspective. It's It's interesting when we speak to our friends in Ukraine and the things they see. Um, they're still just human beings, right? When we when we go to Kiev and we speak to Context in Kiev, they're going. They've been going through the power cycle, on and off, like you describe, being incredibly organized, making sure they shower at certain times of the day because they have hot water, um, and well, water, um, heat at certain times of the day, charging devices and phones, making sure that you know the iPad is charged for the little ones so they can maybe watch some shows or whatever, download things. It's it's basically planning for travel really when you think about getting on an airplane right we all have all got on an airplane or got in a car and we download our favorite shows we prep we prep we prep and that's really what the life cycle has turned into uh, it seems for most ukrainians is to prepare 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 yeah and i think uh, that's uh, where ukrainians are really doing very well because for example just today i saw a couple of news uh, in all these telegram channels how people for example, um, uh, in the um, elevators, they tried to leave everything necessary, starting from uh, basic stuff uh, to water to, I don't know, something, some candle, something that people might need, saying that, well, we have left it for you, but in case you use it, feel free to use it. But then also remember to uh, fill the gaps and uh, leave the same stuff for other people who will come here after you. And the others are just bringing some uh, stuff, as you say, to, to charge iPads or telephones in the middle of the city with special kind of uh, um, uh, specific facility that people who don't have electricity at home, they would just uh, come to special places like cafes or uh, central squares of the cities and they will be able to charge their devices. So it's all kind of self-organization, mutual help, uh, trying to be very organized and to help other people prepare themselves for the worst circumstances. 
Um, and just recent example, probably here, very interesting. You know that now we have a couple of volunteers from Odessa, which is my city. So I have to kind of tell that story because it's a success story. They have come up, uh, with a very interesting application, very basic one for smartphones. So uh, you know that now we're mostly attacked by the Iranian drones, which are very difficult to track because they have this low altitude and very often air defense systems do not see them and track them. So people uh, just, if they see something like a drone or a missile or a helicopter in the air, they can use their uh, smartphone application, which is called EPPO in Ukrainian, meaning Electronic Air Defense System, and they can uh, actually put uh, the location of that missile or drone, and that already helped our armed forces to trace those drones and to hit them very successfully. So that's how Ukrainians operate, trying to help each other and basically to survive. That's amazing. And how cool is that? I mean, you'd get the messages if, I'm assuming, a drone flies overhead, you hit the button on the thing, it locates where you are, and then you have 50 people, you can see the path of where it's going really quickly as it just pops up on the technology and, you know, ping, 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 these people are seeing these and you can see where they're going. So that's, that's absolutely fascinating to think that, you know, the role that just normal Ukrainians are playing could have such an impact and feeding that information to, to soldiers to deal with it. That's cool. I think that's neat. Wow. They were smart. Now, from from great technology to the most simplest of forms, I've seen some photos in Ukraine with when the power goes out, the water pumps go out. And so the no water pressure. So one of the things that I've seen a lot of is photos of people queuing at wells and, you know, getting water, jugs of water, everything else, you know, hand pumps and wells. It, that must be one of the ways that the old Ukraine really works in the favor of the people today. In that, um, the old Ukraine, you know, there was a lot of that, and there must be some of that old infrastructure still around where people can do that. It's working in the favor because people can actually get well in some town water in some towns from hand pump wells when they don't have electricity to have water pressure. Uh, yeah, exactly. We use everything that we have from the past, but we also try to come up with something new for the future. And I think uh, that if there is a silver lining in this uh, brutal Russian aggression in Ukraine, it's that we will make this leap from the Ukraine that we had for years and years to a very new Ukraine, meaning that if we, and we will have to restore energy system that will mostly be based on uh, sustainable development, uh, green energy, new energy resources, new infrastructure, new ways of actually using our resources. So this war also teaches us to be in this safe mode, which we lacked very often in the past. And then if we talk about climate change and sustainable development, and everything for Ukraine, it's not only about the uh, nice goals of the United Nations, it's actually a question of survival, because when you have uh, very uh, scarce resources and you basically have nothing and you want to survive, then you have to learn how to use them in the most effective and efficient way possible. So that's where we are now trying to uh, I would say catch up with the rest of the world, very often uh, being even more creative, even more uh, practical-minded, solution-oriented, because we need, uh, as you mentioned, basic uh, stuff like water or something. So we have to plan it. We have to use all different uh, sources and resources that we have. 
But I think that it's also this creativeness of Ukrainian minds that very often help us survive in the current circumstances. It's absolutely fascinating. Fascinating to think that, you know, well, frankly, that that's the look of what an opportunity this is when your home is under attack. But um, I think it says a lot about the character of Ukrainian people and everything else. Now, you've traveled around a bit. You've you've gone to conferences doing the things that you do. And um, how are you seeing the the international look? I mean, you were in Canada. I'm curious how you see Canadians looking at this, how you see the rest of the world looking at this. Um, has it changed? Is it getting better? Is it more supportive? Is it falling to the back of the queue for the news? Um, how, how is this looking for you in regards to um, the world's look at Ukraine? Well, I think that we have uh, actually left behind the point of no return where they can be uh, rolled back on that road and then people feel in some kind of fatigue with war in Ukraine because it's perfectly clear now that uh, there can be no toxic negotiations with Russia. Uh, luckily, now we almost don't have uh, any offers from our partners to uh, create ramp up for Putin, to save uh, Putin's face, to get back to negotiations table. Because for most, I don't say for everyone, but for most of our partners and for most of the um, uh, European countries and also our partners like the United States and Canada, it's now 100% clear that we had to deal with Russian problem much, much earlier. Now that we are in the situation that we are, we just uh, we have to prevail and we have to win this war. So there is no uh, talk about peace anymore at any cost. Uh, there is talk about Ukrainian victory, about Putin's regime, which has to be defeated on the battlefield. And I think in this regard, we are now in a much better position than we used to be in the first weeks of this war, when we just trying to try to explain to everyone that it's not about uh, compromises, it's not about having a ceasefire or something. On the other hand, it's of course difficult because uh, the uh, methods that Russians are using, they are also very different. So they're trying to um, you know, instrumentalize uh, and to weaponize basically everything, starting from water supplies, energy, up to grain, food, uh, refugees, now that we are entering into uh, this uh, cold winter, of course, they will try to leave us in cold and dark and also to um, to create problems for European and transatlantic partners with food inflation, with uh, huge prices, with everything. So we uh, try not to let that uh, happen and we try to explain uh, what is the real um, reason behind Russians' actions like this. But other than that, I think that for many people, and especially those, um, I would say, uh, journalists and also um, state leaders who have visited Ukraine, that's a very different story rather than for those who are just watching the situation on TV or uh, somewhere on Internet. Like just take an example of uh, German President Steinmeier, who was also a huge supporter of negotiations and talks with Russia. And then when he visited Ukraine and he spent a couple of hours in shelters uh, during sirens and air raids and he just talked to local Ukrainians, he went back to Germany. 
And he had this uh, great speech addressed to his uh, nation, to the German nation, saying that, so we are entering a new era in relations with Russia. There can be no talks with Russia. We need to, uh, to be better prepared ourselves to help Ukraine win this war. Because when people see on the ground how it looks when, like, when they talk to people who have, uh, um, suffered uh, under Russian occupation, all those tortures and all those uh, awful things, uh, it's a very different story than you just look at statistics, how many people were killed and uh, how many weapons were destroyed by Russians. So I think now we, we get this uh, better understanding and uh, feeling of what is really going on in Ukraine, uh, that we are in, basically entering the ninth uh, months of war rather than it was in the very beginning. Uh, it is fascinating to look at how things have changed. The original grain deal, Yevgenia, um, which was a, an interesting one, I think, in your expertise because you focus on the Black Sea and um, that's part of your world. Now, you are on the south end of that and the Black Sea spills out into the rest of the world through one place and really one place only, and that would be through Turkey. So the old deal was Russia basically had said, look, grain ships can go and the grain can get out. That has a big impact on the rest of the world. Everybody seemed to support it. It seemed to be working well. Then um, Ukraine, well, hasn't officially, but there was some celebration, let's say, of some attacks in Crimea. And all of a sudden, um, Putin is taking his toys in from the sandbox and going home. A couple of weeks, four weeks, well, it's three weeks, I guess, before the deal was supposed to end anyway. Um that now all of a sudden Russia's out on the deal and the ships can't go, but the ships are still going from what I've read. And Russia pulls out of that green deal, um, you know, in a bit of a temper tantrum, I guess that because uh, Ukraine turned the tables on his original tactic and, and, and gave it right back to him. So what is the general tone, I guess, from a couple perspectives, Ukraine, obviously, Odessa being on the water. So I'm sure you get the tone of that very quickly from your friends and family in Odessa. And um, from the Black Sea lens, too, of the, the general geopolitics that go with all the countries around it. Um, well, first, I think that's what Russians are trying to uh, say, that uh, this is their reaction to uh, to the attacks on their fleet in Sevastopol. Uh, the reasons for those attacks uh, or the perpetrators of those attacks uh, can be discussed, but uh, that's what Russians say. So Ukraine attacked, and then that's why we are reacting by pulling off of the deal. Whereas the uh, real situation on the ground shows it is a completely different story, just because uh, it's uh, for uh, three or four weeks that Russians have actually been blocking the whole process uh, within the framework of the grain deal uh, starting from September. Uh, and I will explain what it means. As part of the uh, grain deal, there are uh, inspection groups, uh, which consist of representatives of four parties, the United Nations, Turkey as mediators, and then Russia and Ukraine. And those guys, they have to uh, literally check every ship, which is every outbound uh, ship and every ship who, uh, which uh, goes back to Ukraine so that there are no weapons, nothing there. 
and they have to say okay and then to put their signature. So three sites were working within this initiative uh, just like, you know, perfectly. Every day, no problems, whereas Russian inspectors were every time using some different pretext to uh, to block the whole process. So they said they were tired. They said there was a storm on the sea. They said that, you know, it's getting darker quite early now because it's now October or September. And then the queue of the ships, the those vessels uh, who were actually waiting for inspection, it has been growing longer and longer and longer to the situation when Turkey was feeling uncomfortable because there were so many ships uh, in the uh, Marmara Sea, uh, close to the Bosphorus Straits and in the Black Sea, that there were some incidents on the sea because there was no place for other ships and vessels to come in. So they crashed and so on. Um, and there are many different examples of how Russians uh, try to provoke and to, to stop, to stall the whole process, uh, showing that they didn't want to uh, go on with the initiative as uh, it was, as it has been so far. They wanted to bargain. They wanted to have better uh, conditions for themselves, saying that they need uh, Russian uh, wheat and uh, Russian fertilizers to, uh, to, to make their way to the world markets and so on and so forth. So uh, when on the 29th of October, I think uh, this attack happened, that was just a perfect pretext for Russia to say, okay, so this is the moment and we're pulling out of the uh, grain deal. Now it goes on uh, as usual, because uh, as you know, there was no deal signed between Ukraine and Russia. There were two separate deals, one signed between Ukraine, Turkey and the United Nations, and the other one between Russia, the United Nations and Turkey. So within this trilateral cooperation, it's still going on. Uh, inspectors from the United Nations and Turkey are still monitoring those vessels, and that's how it go on, goes on. On the other hand, Russians actually attacked today a couple of uh, small vessels of Ukraine who were uh, uh, like uh, following together with the convoy of the um, uh, Balkars with wheat. And uh, those tugboats, actually, those are the small tugboats. So they were attacked in Achakov, which is close to Odessa region and which is also part of the deal, meaning that Russians will uh, try to create all those provocations and all those attacks on our ships in the future, just not to let not to let this um, grain deal uh, be, be in place for the next weeks. And the reason for that is very clear. They want uh, higher prices on the world markets. They want crisis in many European uh, capitals, uh, again, because of the food inflation, uh, they want destabilization and they want to put pressure on uh, the Western partners of Ukraine not to provide support to, to Ukraine, uh, which, of course, our partners do not buy anymore because everyone knows that Russia is Russia and then you just have to uh, you have to, to go on with uh, normal cooperation and uh, this is just a blackmail. So there can be no negotiations with Russia on that. Was it crazy to think that it would have worked anyway? Was it naive or was it just at least an attempt to do it properly? Well, actually, in the very beginning, I had um, an article which we uh, wrote with a very good friend of mine, uh, Balkan Devlin, for the uh, Globe and Mail. And we said that... Uh, just uh, don't pop up the champagne just yet because it's too early. And the main uh, reason for making any agreements is actually to believe that those agreements will be kept 
which is not case uh, which is not the case for Russia because every time there is a deal with the Russian Federation the Russian Federation will violate it sooner or later this time it happened later not sooner but uh, so since July it's now four, fourth or fifth month right but uh, anyhow uh, it didn't last even for a year or so and it was pretty clear from the very beginning that at some point Russia will start to uh, to to violate it and actually to come up with uh, new conditions and it will not live up to expectations it will not fulfill its commitments and that's what we're seeing just now well, it seems like a pattern, right? They'll say whatever they need to say right now, and then they'll just change it later when it's no longer convenient. Um, fascinating. Well, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Share your thought. Yeah, exactly. And th that's why, as I say, there can be no negotiations with Russia on that. We just need uh, convoys. We need uh, our partners to step in and uh, help us here with the uh, their navies, which would be able to um, accompany the convoys with the uh, bulkers carrying wheat. And that's how we can protect ourselves and supplies of Ukrainian wheat to the world markets for all other countries uh, cooperating uh, together. Because even if we have any kind of a deal now with Russia, uh, I'm pretty sure that they will violate it just again. Evgenia Gaber is in Istanbul, Turkey. The Black Sea is the expertise. She's from Odessa. And I look forward to uh, chatting with you when you get home and getting that perspective of what it's like for you to return back to Odessa because it's been a little bit uh, coming up soon. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Shane. Always a pleasure. This is The Shift Podcast. I am a disco dancer. I thought for sure Handy Andy would come like dressed as Bob the Builder. I know Halloween's kind of done, but... I just thought for sure that's what we were going to see. We we're going to see like a, a Bob the Builder or something going on. But nope, here he is. Just Andy. I, I usually dress like I got this big afro, right? Obviously, I'm going to dress like some disco dancer. Yeah, you do uh, like but, the disco. But this year, I did it because my brother was in town and he borrowed my dad's. So like, you know, in the 70s, they had those like really high shoes. I, I don't know what they're called. Platform shoes. Yeah. Platform. Mm -hmm. there, there you go. You know, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my brother, we, my dad had these, when, I guess, when they got married. And me and my brother always use them on Halloween. Um, but I remember being in my 20s and trying to wear these platforms. And you go to a Halloween party, have a couple drinks, and you always like sprain Broken your ankle ankles, man. you can't yep. walk in those things. Well, that's fine. Well, anyway, you look handsome as always. Thank you. Regardless of your lack of costume. I just thought for sure there would be a costume. That's all right. We're almost done with the Halloween anyway. How are you doing, Andy? How are things? I, um, I'm i excited. I saw your videos up at shiftheads.ca, so I wanted to talk about that because I did the same thing in Ottawa. We did a, a little fall harvest here, so I thought we could. I thought we had that in common, you know, so we could have you know, some time to chat about that, nerd about that. How are things? You good? Things are good, yeah. So we, we kind of talked about this last week where I have, as you know, I created this smart garden. It's like a, a raised vegetable garden that's self-watering, and... It's finally in operation, and we had some really good weather here on the West Coast, like a lot of sun uh, in the early part of the fall. So everything grew, and I had so much kale. And you know, kale, I know you like kale, Shane, but I'm starting to learn just from the Shift Heads group that a lot of people don't like kale. So I have no, a lot it's... of it. Not everyone in my family eats it. 
So I froze it and I created this video to show you how to freeze kale. Here's the thing, Shane. This kale, I grew from seeds that I collected last year. And yeah, I just learned because it looks so – this kale doesn't look like the original kale that I that I bought. And I think it like – it pollinated with other plants. And so I got this hybrid kale now. It kind of looks like spinach, kind of looks like kale and broccoli all mashed in one. So mm-hmm. I, I urge people to go and look at this video and to look at this kale because I've never seen anything like it. But I'm going to eat it anyways because I have a lot of it and it's now frozen. So when we talked about that last week, we talked about freezing kale and I told you how I chop it right before I freeze it. And um, but I did find out something this weekend because, you know, what Melanie does. She doesn't chop it. She freezes it in full um, in the full leaf. And then she uses a meat tenderizer once it's frozen and just smashes it. Oh, and it smashes. I had no idea. Well, looks like there's uh, many ways you can freeze kale. I, I cut it up as well, like you mm-hmm. did. And then it kind of, yeah, I kind of break it inside the bag once it's frozen. Then you can just take mm-hmm. handfuls out and just throw it into no, a cool. smoothie or, or what have you. Um, but it, it's a good habit. Like I have now got the full perpetual circle, growing my own or collecting my own seeds, growing food, and then eating it and freezing it and then doing it mm-hmm. again, repeat. So that's right. Um, with the, I was at Costco today. I could not believe the price of food. So I am very, very motivated to keep this going and to probably build more gardens and, you know, grow more food and collect it and, and eat it. I think I'm going full circle with this, uh, mm-hmm. especially with these well, high kale's food prices. Like 50%. I mean, but it, it mean, it's not like it's expensive anyway. It was like 250 or now it's like 350 or 375. It's not crazy expensive, but it has gone up quite a bit. Um, but we, when we cleaned out the garden here, we chatted about that. We got Brussels sprouts. We got tomatoes, more strawberries. There was actually strawberry flowers that were still flowering. And plus all the kale that came out of the garden, you know, and we chatted about it and I thought of you and we were chatting and I said, you know, if you just let mother nature do what mother nature does, it's not really that hard. And we, we've, as a society, of course, we let farmers grow our food. We don't do that anymore, but really it's actually not that difficult if you just let the nature do its thing. Yes. And it really comes down to timing. You want to plant the plants at the right time of year. And, you know, you set this in your calendar. Like, we have the technology. I, I set it in my calendar now, Shane, what times to, to start planting and then when oh, to idea. harvest as well. Mm-hmm. And also, because I have this new automated watering system, I have to shut the system down before the first frost because everything falls apart. You get leakage and everything. Yeah. So that's why I, I turn my system down. I harvest the kale. Everything's kind of like shut down and I got food in the freezer for the next couple of months. So I'm pretty happy. And I just got to make this a habit each and every year to do this mm-hmm. and encourage other people to do it as well. Like you said, Mother Nature does majority of the work. We just got to get it into the ground and then harvest it at the end. Very cool. Um, and trust me, as your as his friend, um, you don't want um, his couplings to leak and Andy Barr leakage is not a good thing. I've seen him after a few beers. <laughs> he starts he starts to leak. Um, okay, uh, here on the shift, the well, I was really surprised, by the way, by the amount of cherry tomatoes we got um, and the fact that there were still red strawberries in the garden at the end of October. I just wanted to add that. Like, it was thoroughly impressive. It was really cool. Yeah, the tomatoes, um, they, they're, they're late. You know, they, I even have some still growing right now. It's, um, and some are still green. So mm-hmm. who knows? They, I might still be harvesting in the next week or two. 
That's cool. All right. Uh, next on the list, we chatted about, we, we were going to talk about this last week, but it kind of stuck around. Um, headphones, Andy. Um, you think this is a good idea. I'm cautious about this idea. Um, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But what do you have here? At least it's a neat idea, regardless. Yeah. So coming onto the market right now are the world's first commercially available solar-powered headphones. So these are kind of the over-the-ear headphones, the kind that we're wearing right now, Shane, the, the, cups. the cups. And so you have the band, you know, that, that connects each of the cups. So what they're doing is they got this new solar panel called Power Foil. It's not like your typical solar panels. These ones are about a, a 1.3 millimeters thick, and it's based around titanium dioxide covered in this natural dye. And the dye absorbs photons from the light and converts it into electrons to power the headphones. So the headphones actually have a battery, but it's using the light, you know, the solar light to to convert that into energy to charge the battery, which then will charge the headphones. And they're taking this technology and they're going to like incorporate it, not just in headphones, but they're going to try to incorporate it into fabrics and, and garments in the future. So you might have like smart T-shirts in the future that can measure your body temperature, your heart rate, um, you know, your sleep cycle, all because of this technology where it can harness light, not only the outdoor light, but indoor light as well. Um, and so they're starting with solar panel headphones, but that could lead to solar panel T-shirts and maybe jeans in the near future. Now, I like this idea of the solar panel woven into fabrics and all the things that we can get. It depends what it's truly made out of. I realize they say titanium, but there's got to be some you know, other products in there. The thing that I struggle with, of course, is when we say, let's recycle and use less plastics, and then we all have plastics in our clothes. We buy more clothes. But that being said, if it's true on that part, I love this. I just don't think headphones are a great thing, because I don't know about you, but when was the last time you wore headphones over your ears in the sun, right? You wear earbuds in the sun yeah. because they're too hot. So unless they're going to uh, let the sun in on the airplane when I'm flying, because that's normally where I wear my headphones if I'm not working, um, it seems like a great idea that's put in the wrong place to me. Well, they were actually thinking about using these for smartphones. They're like, this technology, you know, we could use it to charge smartphones. But the problem is we keep our phones in our pocket, so it doesn't actually get a lot of light and I guess they, they thought about all the different products they could put it in, and it was headphones that they thought would make sense. But you're right. When you're in the sun, like I see people in the gym sometimes with these over the ears, and I'm like, how do you do that? Because your ears Too must hot. get sweaty, you yeah. know, and it must get uncomfortable. But I think it's just this technology being adopted. They're going to use it. And then there's two types for the garments. Not only could it collect the, the energy from the sun, but they're creating an, an entire different technology, Shane, where just your movements, as you're moving around, you're creating that static energy. They want to harness that inside the garments to potentially in the future charge phones or give you sensors like a smart T-shirt to, to measure your vitals uh, for day to day. So there, it's really, it reminds me of Science 9. My teacher said, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It merely mm -hmm. changes form. And this mm -hmm. is a case in point. Uh, using either sun or movement and to harness that energy to power our devices, electronic devices of the future. Yeah, so probably not there yet, but at least a cool, very cool step in the right direction. That's for sure, because here's what we do know. Solar panels, the big old solar panels, California is the best example of that. They did so many incentives to put solar panels up. A lot of those solar panels are reaching the end of their life cycle. 
and there's nothing to do with they can't do anything with them yet and now they're having to bury them millions of solar panels in the ground like garbage so you know there's an there's um that old world is not working at the end of life end of it creating electricity sure so if this is a thinner version of that that's less product and less impactful uh, we're absolutely on the right track thank you for being here being a part of the shifthead community shiftheads.ca if you want to check it out you can um, go to our facebook group everything's posted on there including handy andy barrar's video of his garden from this week so please do go check that one out and you can learn some more there now andy is on the west coast he's in surrey just outside vancouver andy has a youtube channel where you can go and you can follow that YouTube channel where he posts his videos and all those things, so some DIY, and you can also suggest ideas. He likes that, too. But YouTube, Andy, they're, um, they've, they're masterful at a couple of things. Even though people have switched over to shorter-form TikTok, there's a lot of migration happening on users, which, by the way, we're going to talk about here in a bit on the shift. Um, but YouTube is masterful at one particular thing. What is it? Well, what YouTube has done is basically figured out how to take our attention spans and, you know, watching videos and turn that into money. And they have just mastered it. And they did it so early, Shane. YouTube has been compensating creators, so people that are making YouTube videos, since 2007. That was two years after it launched and only a year after Google acquired it. Google bought YouTube and they paid about $1.65 billion at the time, which in, in hindsight was one of the best acquisitions ever. Because if you look at YouTube t- today, the stats, Shane, are just mind-boggling. In, in, YouTube has 2 billion monthly logged-in users. Now, that's astounding considering that there's 7 billion people on Earth and 2 mm-hmm. billion are logged in on YouTube that's logged all in. the time. I never log in. Really? You don't? I never I never log in. I just watch the videos. Oh, so it doesn't really get to understand your uh, your interest. No, it doesn't follow, doesn't follow my jam. But that just doesn't include me in that number either, so it's even higher. Yeah, well, in a given 24-hour period, more than a billion hours of video are streamed on YouTube, and every minute, over 500 hours of video are uploaded. The thing I can't figure out, Shane, is all of this is going on to a server somewhere, all of this information. And mm-hmm. if we just think about humanity in like 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, all of that data is still going to exist. Like it, it's mind boggling just how big YouTube is. The interesting thing about YouTube out of all the social networks is that it's just more than a social network. It's a library. It's a music streaming platform. It's even a babysitting service. You know, it hosts the world's largest collection of instructional videos. Like you can learn oh, wow. virtually anything on YouTube. Now, all of the other social media companies have faced a lot of scrutiny over the last couple of years. Facebook, of course, Twitter. But for some reason, YouTube has been able to bypass that, even though they have their own issues as well. You know, you've had like people live stream mass shootings, but they've been able to ferret you know, all this criticism quite well. And I think the reason why, Shane, is, you know, we talk about, oh, I'm going to quit Facebook, quit TikTok, quit Twitter. Nobody ever says I'm going to quit YouTube. It has become such a part of our lives that I don't think we could even fathom not having YouTube as part of our our day-to-day life now. It's, It's for a lot of people, that's where you go for entertainment and also for education. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you want to figure out how to change a headlight in a car, a wiper on your car, um, even in a lot of cases, 
the user manuals, you want to adjust the legs on your desk, there's probably a YouTube video for that, which makes yeah. me wonder how much time these people have. Well, you know, a lot of companies now, instead of doing the actual manuals, they'll just have a QR code. You scan the QR code, it takes you to a YouTube video, which will show you the entire installation. But I, I find it really amazing that they have been able to to fare all of this criticism for such a long time. You know, people talk about quitting Twitter right today. I, every time I go on Twitter, I see people like, ah, that's it, I'm going to leave. I have never yeah. heard anybody ever say, I'm quitting YouTube, I've had enough. Just it's like it's like saying I'm quitting electricity. You know, you just don't imagine doing that. And you know, I I just feel that even though TikTok is is taking a lot of the eyeballs away from YouTube, short uh, form videos, they're even trying to do that right now. I don't think it's really picking up compared to TikTok. But but YouTube is here to stay. And you know, if I could only figure out that algorithm, Shane, I would be very very rich. It's just the hardest algorithm to to master. That's the magic of all of it. That's for sure. Okay, so here, here's a question for you. 877-399-9898. How are you changing what you watch? And here's why we ask. Netflix has put forward um, a new level of package that's going to appear on your Netflix account that has commercials. They're going to insert commercials. So if you want no commercials, you've got to pay more than what you're paying. Now, YouTube has done this forever. They have commercials everywhere. You pay for the premium YouTube. You don't have to watch commercials, which some people say there still are some commercials, which is weird, but um, you basically get to your videos faster. So Netflix is taking a page from the YouTube catalog, and they're doing that as well. So we're going to talk about that. What are you watching, and are you changing what you're watching because it's becoming so expensive? Now, you talked about deleting your Twitter account. It is a thing, and um, how do we do that? Yeah, so um, a lot of people have been talking about deleting Twitter because of Elon Musk purchasing it. Now, here's the thing you have to know. If you do it, you don't actually erase your account. Twitter will give you 30 days to, uh, basically, it's like a little timeout, where after 30 days, then your account officially gets deleted. So you go into the settings and privacy, go into your account, you can deactivate it. But it's not gone. They still have everything. You can even download all of your tweets and all of your information before you delete it. But after 30 days, that's when it's completely gone. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So you basically have this kind of 30-day grace period to see if you really do want to leave Twitter. They try to encourage you to change your handle maybe. They don't want you to leave, but I know a lot of people are are thinking about it. So if you want to do it, start it now. Tomorrow, it's November 1st, so you can start it now and then by December, you'll be gone off Twitter for good. HandyAndyMedia.com, 10 seconds, Andy. Um, is online streaming getting too expensive for you? For Oh, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I just watch commercials now. I've gotten yeah. used to it. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.